by, by friends and loved ones, maybe even some family. Um, the football game is just getting started. You're kind of, you're, you're, you're settling in into your, into your favorite chair. The fire's going with all this food that you have and just like the white noise of all the conversations going around. You're, you're about to slip into just a nice Thanksgiving Day food coma. I mean, oh, just everything is right. Um, but you've forgotten uh, that uh, Uncle Jimmy is here. And Uncle Jimmy, uh, he likes to bring uh, several boxes of wine to these events. And he's just pounding these boxes like it's Kool-Aid, just going to town. And um, suddenly your peaceful day isn't so peaceful anymore. I mean, he's knocking over stuff. He's breaking the Christmas decorations that you put up, even though it's too early for Christmas decorations. I don't know why you put those up in the first place. <coughs> Um, but those those are those are being being broken. Uh, he, Uncle Jimmy's from Texas, and he's just jabbering about how great the Cowboys are this year and how they're going to go to the Super Bowl. And you're an Eagles fan, and so you're just annoyed right now. Um, and then he just Uncle Jimmy's just yelling inappropriate things in front of your kids and to your kids. Like, wh- why? Who who invited him? Why why is why is he here right now? Your your peaceful, relaxing day, it's gone. And what is it that you really want to do? I mean, because you're not going to do what you actually what you what, what you actually want to do. But what you want to do is just kick him out, right? I mean, who invited him in the first place? You know, he does this at every family get together. Um, I mean, you just want to. I, I mean, if it were me, at least I would want to just 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 kick him out. I want I want another an, another piece of grandmother's chocolate pudding cake, and I want to just settle back in my chair and take a nap. Um, that's not going to happen, though. Uh, as now we're going to get into God's Word, I want you to just kind of keep this story in the back of your mind. That that frustration that you felt whenever just the peaceful day is just upset. And then just that impulse, that desire to just kick Uncle Jimmy out and get your peaceful day back. Um, so now we're going to turn uh, to the book of Numbers just going to read a super exciting story. Uh, And if you know anything about numbers, you know I'm being sarcastic when I say an exciting story. Uh, Numbers and also actually the book that comes right before Leviticus. These are like the two books that whenever you're doing your like New Year's, redo the Bible in a whole year resolution thing. So you you start at Genesis and you're like, oh, it's really cool stories here. Great. Move on to Exodus. Oh, wow. Parting the Red Sea is cool. Leviticus. Man. There's like these rules about holiness and things, and oh, I'll kind of skim through it. And then, okay, numbers. Why, God, why are you doing this to me? And your resolution is over. <laughs> I know I'm not setting myself up uh, for success here, um, but I, I, I want to look at the book of Numbers because uh, for, for, for two reasons. One, all of Scripture reveals the character of God. And if we're only looking at, at, at parts, what we'll tend to do is we kind of take these parts and uh, we, we add these conceptions that, that we have. And we basically just create a God that we want to worship. It's a God who's, who, who's created in our own image. So we need to look at all of Scripture so that we can let God be God and not try to just make our own God. And the second reason um, I, want, I want to look at, at this passage in Numbers is because I, I want to show... How the Old Testament is a is a is a shadow 
of what is to come in Christ. And I think um, it's, it's incredible when we can see how God from the very beginning is, is just kind of giving us a hint at what's to come. I think it's just it's such a cool thing. I want to just put that on display. Um, so now we're going to turn to Numbers 1, uh, 47 to 54. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. just translates a, a few words a little bit differently than the Bibles in your pew. Um, so here, here's God's word. But the Levites were not listed along, along with them by their ancestral tribe. So a little context. There's, being a, uh, there's a census being taken of Israel right now. That's what's happening. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Exciting, right? Um, so a little, a little background on what's going on here. Uh, at this point, the people of Israel have been liberated from their slavery in Egypt. Remember all the plagues, parting of the Red Sea, all that stuff? And they're on their way to the promised land, the land that God has said is flowing with milk and honey, and it's, and it's for you. Um, in the meantime, while they're in the wilderness, God has instructed them to build this tabernacle. It's, uh, it's kind of like a, a portable temple. It's where uh, God's presence would, would specially dwell, where they could come and worship him in just a, a, a unique, a very intense way. Um, and then God had them place the tabernacle in the middle of the camp, and he arranges the rest of the camp in a very particular way. Uh, he has certain tribes on the east on the west, on the north, and the south. And then he puts the Levites in between the people and the tabernacle. So why do this? Why would that matter at all? Um, what God is, is doing is here is he's uh, giving us a demonstration of new creation where everything is ordered as it should be in a, in a special, unique relationship to God. And God is functioning as the center of, of creation. I mean, that's kind of what we have in, in Genesis, or what was supposed to happen, is that um, creation is ordered in a certain way, and God is its life. There's particular boundaries that they are to live in, but those are the boundaries that are, that are that's best for human flourishing. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that's broken and destroyed. So here, we have another picture of that just coming into the creation in this new special case. Um, and in, in being arranged in a certain way, uh, the Israelites were, were set apart from the world. They were, they were holy. They had this special, unique relationship to God. And uh, the idea of, of holiness, um, that's what primarily the books of Leviticus and Numbers are, are, are about. It's God who is holy, giving instructions for how the Israelites were to be holy, how, how they were to be 
perfect and, and pure like, like God was. And uh, I think standing where, where we are now, these kind of rules and arrangements might seem a little much, a little tedious. Um, but as, as actually one of my professors has, has, has noted, I think it's, it's for this reason. Um, our modern inability to appreciate or even understand how purity systems or, or holiness systems and how they work as a barometer of how far away we are as a culture and society from having a notion of the reality of a holy God as a truly defining center of our lives and communities. See here, God is right at the center of, of the community, and if everything is, is to be holy, if it's to have this unique relationship to Him, then it has to be ordered how, how He would have it. And so here we're just kind of seeing the, the particular instructions for, for the Levites. Um, still, even having this concept of holiness, that's kind of what the, the author here is talking about, I still think there's a, a few questions or concerns we're going to have when we look at this text. Uh, one, so the Levites surround the tabernacle, and they're kind of keeping it, they're maintaining it, they're tearing it down, setting it up. And Okay, I think that makes sense to us. But then uh, they're... T- Guard it from the people. Um, okay, maybe a little odd. Um, the second thing, anyone who comes closest to be put to death, we might find that a little troubling and a little uh, excessive. Um, and th- three, the Levites seem actually to be, in some sense, guarding the people from God's wrath. Maybe a little more troubling. God's wrath is just going out onto the people? Um, why, why would these, like, this, this certain arrangement be necessary? Um, this, this comes back to the idea of holiness. Um, if, if holiness is some kind of like perfection, it's, it's pure, then holiness and unholiness, we'll say, cannot coexist. They can't. It's, when, when we try to intermingle holiness and unholiness, one of two things generally happens. Um, in, when, on, on the one, one side, um, the, the unholiness kind of infects or, or corrupts the holiness. Uh, I think a, a good image for this is if, if you have salt water and you have fresh water and you put them together, you get salt water. It's not, you don't have, like, there's fresh water up in there. No, like, it's all salt water now, right? Um, that's kind of how holiness kind of infects in a sense. But on, on the other hand, you have holiness um, consumes unholiness. It, it just wants to get rid of it. And think think back to our, our Thanksgiving story from a second ago. Um, Uncle Jimmy in that instance is the imperfection in that perfect day. And there's this impulse to just want to kick it out, to, to, to remove that perfection, that, that imperfection. And I think I think this is actually the, kind of a, a similar impulse to drive at, at least part of our justice system. You know, we have a society that's ordered in a, in a certain way, and there's a disturbance uh, in that order. Someone decides to rape, to kill, and we need to remove that imperfection so that the order of society can be maintained, you know, in, in a sense. Um, a, another analogy, I think, to, that, that's helpful to think about this Un, or this holiness consuming holiness is light and darkness. Uh, this is this is the the biblical image that's often given to describe holiness. I mean, you, you you turn on a light, and the darkness just 
It's gone. It vanishes. That's holiness just consuming unholiness. And when we, when we think about that um, and then look back at Numbers 1, I think we see this point. The holiness of God is dangerous. That may not fit with our conception of, of, of a loving God um, where we make loving equal to nice. Um, but, I mean, look at the text. The Levites are guarding the people from the wrath of God. His, his perfection is wanting to go out and, and consume their imperfection. It's, it's like, um, uh, it's like uh, God is like a, this fiery oven in a fireworks factory. And when a firework hits an oven, uh, fireworks are going to go off. Um, and, you know, that's actually, even though there's this guarding that happens, sometimes it doesn't always work like it's supposed to. There's actually uh, this time in, in Numbers 3 where some people bring in um, something into the sanctuary that they, they weren't supposed to. It was against God's arrangement. And he strikes them down. Another time in Numbers 16, there's some people who rebel against Moses and against God. And God actually like opens up the earth and swallows them like Indiana Jones style. Uh, it's crazy. And then there's just throughout the book of Numbers, people are constantly complaining. They're turning to worship things other than God. They're just rebelling. And God sends plagues just to, to purge them. This happens in Numbers 11, 14, 21, 25. We might think then that, well, this is an anomaly to Numbers. I mean, there's a reason why we don't really read it a whole lot. You know, we'll just, so we'll just kind of, you know, pack away Numbers over here and the wrathful God will just kind of set aside. But the difficult truth is, and it, it really is a difficult truth, is that this isn't an anomaly. Um, I mean, the, the psalm we read for our call to worship, part of it reads, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Um, see, also just throughout the, the, the Old Testament, this happens. In um, Exodus twenty four seventeen. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Deuteronomy 4.24 For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Isaiah 30.27 Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. Isaiah 33.14 Jeremiah 10.10 Lamentations 2.3 Zephaniah 1.18 I could go on. I mean, it's, it's, it's just there. We can't tiptoe around it. So then what do we, what do we make of this? Um, one option, we deny, uh, we just deny that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the loving God we see in, in Jesus. That would be an option. It's not the first time someone has put forth this option. Um, this is actually this, uh, the, this is called Marcionism. Uh, it happened a long time ago, and the church a long time ago was like, this doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it neglects that there's actually these types of passages also in the New Testament. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to Peter, and God strikes them down. Um, it also kind of makes uh, two gods. There's the God of evil and the God of goodness. And in Scripture, we don't, we don't see that. We see over and over that there's one God who is sovereign over all. Uh, it also 
as, as actually we'll kind of get to a little bit more, it also neglects some really important parts of the Old Testament, actually. Uh, so, so this option of just like denying that uh, there's this Old Testament guy that I don't think is, is really going to work. And a, a second option would be to try to understand the justice of this response. Um, I'm not going to try to convince you that um, emotionally it's easy to comprehend this, that God would, just, his wrath would come out on, onto people. It's not, it's not just easy to, to get, but um, I, I do think that we can at least intellectually make some sense of this. Um, remember, if we go back to this idea that holiness and unholiness can't coexist, that light overcomes darkness, um, I, I think this will kind of help because so holy things might be able to, to be corrupted, the, the, you know, the, the fresh water kind of becoming salt water. But can God, the eternal God who is creator of, of everything, who is sovereign over everything, who is perfect and who is pure and good, can he be corrupted by our unholiness? I don't think so. I think it has to be the other option. And I think we need to, we need to stop for a second and, and make sure that we're not kidding ourselves about our unholiness, about our, our imperfection. Um, I mean, we're, we're just like the Israelites who are constantly spurning God's favor. Um, God, God created a world knit together with peace, love, joy, goodness, order. Um, you'll hear us call this shalom. It's the, it's the Hebrew word that kind of encapsulates all these ideas. God created the world knit together with those things, and we've been tearing it apart since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and believed they could be like God, since Cain killed Abel, and since the Israelites built this golden calf to worship. We've been doing the same things ever since. Um, I mean, just look inside yourself, if, if you'll be honest with yourself, and and we we cheat to get ahead. We um, we lie. We even if we're not committing adultery, we're lusting in our hearts. Um, another thing I think that I think a, a lot of us Christians we kind of try to get around is uh, contempt. We hold a lot of people in contempt. We um, very easily just kind of see ourselves as as better than others. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, it'll be like the the meet and greet time where we go to shake hands, and there's that one person. Mm, I'm gonna just kind of avoid them. They're just kind of annoying, and I just can't. I just can't handle that. Um, that's that's one way, maybe somewhat trivial, that that comes up. But I've I've noticed this. I mean, not necessarily specifically like here in this church, but kind of in this area, um, how people talk about Trenton. Um, it's oh, it's Trenton, and uh, you know, make sure you lock your doors when you're in Trenton. Um, there's just you know, poverty and, and crime, and that's it, it, it actually it, it reminds me a lot of how um, people in the New Testament kind of talked about Nazareth, where Jesus is from. How can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what they said. I think we kind of have this: how can anything good come from Trenton? Maybe um, we we so easily just kind of find little things to to make ourselves higher than others. Um, I just want to be clear. I'm also I'm also guilty of this. Um, the imperfection of us just is is so so obvious. I mean, not just us. Look at the world: racism, poverty, war. The imperfection there is is just clear. We uh, we're basically just a, a bunch of 
drunk Uncle Jimmy's at God's Thanksgiving feast. Right? That's what we are. We're just messing up the, the, the peace that was there. And the, the impulse that is driving holiness would just be to, to drive us out, to consume us, to, for God to be that consuming fire that burns away impurities, that burns away his adversaries because we are his adversaries. Um, Christians, you might be thinking to yourselves, like, wait a minute, this angry God, that's not what I signed up for. I don't want that. Or, uh, you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, oh yeah, some wrathful fire and brimstone God, I, I knew there was a reason why I hadn't signed up for this thing yet. Um, but first, I, I just, I want to remind us that, again, all of Scripture reveals the character of God. And it's such a battle for us to submit our conceptions of God to what God has actually told us about Himself. We need we 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 have to, to really truly listen to what Scripture is saying. Um, the second thing is, this is actually where God throws us a curveball. Um, where you know it, it, it is true that God's holiness is dangerous, but we see this second point um, also. It's actually I think we see it here in Numbers as well, and that is this: that God's holiness is loving and redeeming. So, okay, so God is holy. We are unholy. Holiness and unholiness, light and darkness, they can't coexist. And the eternal God cannot be infected or corrupted by us. So, so it would make sense that if God is to dwell in his people or with his people, that they would be consumed. But the scandal of, of God's grace is that he, he kind of makes a, a third option. Um, Holiness and unholiness can't coexist, yes. But God's like, yeah, well, I'll just, I'll just make uh, the, what is unholy, holy. It's not, it's not what is deserved, but, but that's what God just makes a way to do anyways. Um, so when, when God decided to dwell in the middle of the camp in the tabernacle, uh, he made the Levites and the priests mediators between himself and the people. So we kind of see here that yes, they're kind of functioning as like a barrier or as guards between the people and between God. Um, but w- when you read the rest of, of Leviticus and Numbers, we see that they're actually the means by which the people can enter into the sanctuary and have fellowship with God. Um, they, they, the, the, the books of, of Leviticus, Leviticus and Numbers, they tell us of how um, the Levites and the priests offer, offer sacrifices so that their sins, their impurities could go upon the sacrifice and they could be pardoned. Um, they could be made holy. Um, and in that way, fellowship with their creator was restored. So we start to see that God was even even way back here in the book of Numbers, he's mending those broken seams of the world. He's He's knitting them back together with again with his love and his peace and his joy and his order. He's 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 doing this with um, uh, with these men who are appointed as as mediators. Um, the Ezekiel 22 kind of says like that that these people kind of stand in the breach. There's this disconnect between what is perfect and what is imperfect, and these people are helping bring the two back together. Um, so, so yes, we see that, that God is wrathful. That's that's true. 
But so much more often does Scripture talk about how God has steadfast love, how He is faithful, how He is righteous, how He is good, how He is merciful, how He is kind. And we, we see that he's, he's making a way for what is imperfect to be perfect again. He's doing that in, in spite of the fact that what is just is that we would be consumed. And, and what we have here in Numbers is just a copy and a shadow of what we find to be truly and completely in Jesus Christ. Um, so, I would encourage you, go read Leviticus and Numbers. Um, maybe a little bit more than just skim it. Like, really read it. Get a sense of what's going on. And then go read um, Hebrews in the New Testament. And it's going to make so much more sense. Because um, we, we see that God has appointed these human mediators, but they fail because they have sins and weaknesses of their own. Actually, in, in, in Ezekiel 22, God says that he cannot find someone to stand in the breach in that situation. So Jesus, he's actually, he's, he is both the God that's in the tabernacle and he's both the people that are outside in the camp. Because of that, he, he can bring them, those two together, closer than, than anyone else can. In, in uh, Hebrews 4.14, it says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. From the very beginning, Scripture has been marching towards this goal in Christ. And right here, it's giving us this, this picture of, of the fact that we need a mediator. We need some way to, to, to be made holy and perfect if, if we're to have a relationship with God. And Jesus is that perfectly. I think, I think then, kind of understanding this fact that God's holiness is dangerous, but it's also loving and redeeming... I think this leads us to at least two responses. One of those is if, if we trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we believe that his, his Spirit is actually making us holy, we have to reorient our entire life around the God who is making us holy. Just like in, in the Israelite camp, God functioned at the very center of their community and, and defined their lives. That's how... It should be for us. Our life should be holy. And, and I don't mean holy as uh, just morality. It is, it is part of that. There is a way in which um, our, our actions are supposed to reflect the, the goodness and the perfectness of God. But I mean all of life. What does it look like to completely be conformed to the will of God? Um, not just your actions, your speech. Um, the intentions uh, in which you, you act out upon, your thoughts. What does it mean to have holy thoughts? What does it mean to have ways of thinking that are holy? Do we, do we ever stop and, and, uh, and, and really, really think about well, what if every part of our lives was holy to God? What if um, your job, you, you did it in holiness? What would, that, what would that even look like? What would it look like to have holy relationships? Uh, the relationships with your friends, with, um, with your children, with your parents, um, 
what does that look like? Um, what does it look like to engage in, in society in general out of, out of the holiness that you have been given in Christ? Um, I mean, if, if God is, is truly knitting the world back together in his order and his love and his peace, that means, that means he's doing that for, for all of life. And I think a lot of times we don't want all of life to be holy. You know, parts of it we'll give to God, that's fine. But all of life, yeah, I don't know. But that has to be that has to be the response if we want if we want a relationship with the God who is the source of all life and goodness, then then we must we must be be holy our whole lives. The, the second uh, response, other another response that I think is is proper to the, to the the truth that we find here in Scripture is that we need to praise and give thanks. I mean, judgment and wrath is what's deserved, right? Romans uh, 5.10 says that, that God saves us while we were his enemies. We are supposed to be consumed, burned away with God's consuming fire. And God says, I'm going to make a way. I'm actually going to come myself as, as Jesus Christ, and I, I will be the sacrifice that, that takes your imperfections. I will be the one who stands in the breach because I can do it because I am both God and I will be with you as well. I will be one of you. That's amazing. I mean, do we really do we have really ever stop to think about that, that, that fact that God came as one of us, but he's also God and, and he took all our imperfections upon himself? We, we ought to be singing with the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The, um, the writers of, of the Bible, um, they didn't shy away from the fact that God's holiness is dangerous. They don't, they don't try to cover that up at all. But when they praise him as their holy one, they praise him as their redeemer, as their creator, as their good king. Isaiah 43, 14 and 19 says this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Holy God, um, we do want to praise you for being holy. Um, we know that, that what, what we deserve is, is wrath, but we see that even, even back in the book of Numbers, you're making a way so that we can be made holy, so that we can have a relationship with you, that we can have fellowship with you. God, you're intent on making us your sons and daughters, not those who are objects of your wrath. You take your own wrath upon yourself in Christ and the cross. Help us 
to see that, to, to take a hold of that. Help us, uh, help help that to shape how, how we worship and, and, and love you, God. God, we give you thanks for what you've done for us. And, and we ask that you would help us orient our entire lives around you who are holy, you who are perfect and pure and good. God, you are holy. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.